Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament. So quick review of the ground we've covered so you have some context in your mind and understand where we are in, uh, in this book. What's happening historically in this period of time is that the Jews are returning to Judah after 70 years or so of exile in Babylon. The temple foundations have been laid and then the work got stalled for roughly 20 years through various uh, opposition and frustrations. And so the foundation has been laid, but the building has not been completed. And so now God has raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to minister to God's people, encouraging them to take up the work of rebuilding the temple and their city. He began the book of Zechariah with a gracious invitation. Return to me and I will return to you. It was God's purpose to come back to his people, to dwell among his people again in covenant blessing and faithfulness. And so he's inviting them to draw near to him. And then he gives Zechariah a series of eight visions, rich with both promises and exhortations, challenges for the prophet to deliver to the people, that they might be strengthened for the work ahead, and indeed for the reality of living as the covenant people of God. We've looked at the first five of these visions, and today we'll look at the final three that take up chapters five and about the first half of chapter six. So that's where we are today. And we'll see three things that God does for his people in Zechariah's day that still ring true for his church today. So far from just getting a history lesson about what happened with Israel back then, these visions and the promises and exhortations within pertain just as much and perhaps in a deeper way to Christians today. We'll see three things. I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll go through these one at a time. Number one, God judges his people's sin. Number two, God removes his people's guilt. Number three, God gives his people rest. And each one of these visions drives home that particular point. So we'll start with the first of these visions. It's the sixth vision in the frame of eight. First one we're looking at today in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Let me read these verses for you. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." So remember, this is uh, what, what has been dubbed apocalyptic literature. So these visions are 
filled with strange, vivid images that depict some reality, some spiritual truth or something that God intends to do or to promise or to convey to his people. And so the, the, the image of a flying scroll, of course, seems a little strange to us, uh, but it is intended to bring home and to make a point. Namely, I believe that this vision brings home the point that God judges his people's sin. It's a huge scroll. Of course, back then they didn't have books like we have where there's, you know, binding on the, the spine and you flip the pages. So a book would be written in the form of a scroll, a long piece of paper that would then be rolled up. And this scroll, we're told, is 20 cubits by 10 cubits. And you don't have to know what a cubit is, but that's about 30 feet by 15 feet. So this is like a billboard in the sky. It is like a huge banner. And it has writing on both sides because it says that, that, that those who steal will be cleaned out by what's written on one side and those who swear falsely will be cleaned out by what's written on the other side. So in that way, it resembles the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses carried down from uh, the mountain containing uh, the summary of God's law. And so there's writing on the front and on the back of this enormous scroll. And it is, and the content of this particular scroll is the curses for disobedience, right? He says that the people will be cleaned out by what's written on both sides. There'll be those who steal and those who swear falsely will be judged by what is written on the scroll. And I think the, the, the curse here indicates that the book of the law of Moses is in view especially perhaps Deuteronomy with this extensive list of curses for covenant disobedience. So at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapters 20 and 20, 28 and 29, there's this long list of if you, do, if you obey the covenant, if you follow the word of God, then all these things will go well with you. There'll be all these blessings. But if you disobey and you're unfaithful and you're idolatrous, here are all these terrible things that God's going to bring into your lives and among uh, the people. And so that list of the, the curses of God that would fall upon the people in their disobedience and in their rebellion is clearly in view as this flying scroll goes all out over the land. That is the land of Judah, the land where the people of God are dwelling. And God sets his sights on two particular crimes, stealing and swearing falsely. And it's possible that these sins are particularly disruptive in the post-exilic community. Maybe these are particular struggles that the people have been dealing with uh, since they've returned to the land of Judah. But I think it's more likely that they're simply sort of representative examples of the entirety of the book of the law. So stealing is a sin against your fellow man, right? When I steal something that belongs to you, I have sinned against you. I have violated you. And swearing falsely then is a sin against God, right? Because it's his name that's invoked. He says there in verse four, whoever swears falsely by my name. So it's to invoke the name of God, the name of Yahweh, and then to do dishonorably or dishonestly. So there's a, a false swearing, which is a sin against God. So perhaps it's a summary of sin against neighbor and sin against God. And so the scroll is said to enter the house of the unrepentant, those who are perpetuating these sins of stealing or of swearing falsely by his name, and it consumes his house, obviously implying death. 
And it doesn't matter what their house is made of. It's both timber and stones. So this, the fire from the word of God is not limited by uh, the construction of your house, whether it's hay or straw. And so the, uh, the word of God comes into the life of the people with judgment, with, with promised curses for disobedience. So I think the point of this image is simply this. God will discipline his children. Remember, these are his people whom he loves. He has already declared in many ways his intention and his heart and his desire to, to dwell with them to be among them in blessing and in kindness and faithfulness. He has covenanted with them for their good. He has told us in Zechariah 1.14 that he is jealous for them. That is, they are my possession. I will not share them. Right? They are mine. And so the judgment of wickedness among his people is not a sign of his abandonment or of malice toward his people, as though God has suddenly changed his mind about them. It is indeed a sign of his love for them, both for the sinner and the one sinned against. For in the case of the one who is guilty of the sin, God loves you too much to leave you in your sin, to allow it to wreck your life and to damage your relationship with him. His discipline of your sin is an expression of his love for you. And for the one who's been sinned against, God loves you too much to leave you without redemption, without justice. His discipline of the sin of others is an expression of his love for you. This is the way that it is among the people of God. God disciplines those he loves. Friends, the Lord is deeply concerned for the holiness of his people. He was deeply concerned that the nation of Israel would be holy, distinct from the world around them. And his concern is no less today for the church. Those who bear the name of Jesus Christ ought to resemble him, ought to represent him in the world. And he cares deeply that we represent him faithfully. We who bear his name must bear it with integrity and honor, seeking at all times to show forth his moral goodness and his loving kindness in our words and our actions. Remember Hebrews 12, 6, it tells us the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The discipline from the Lord is not a sign that he has abandoned you. It's a sign that he loves you. It's a sign that you belong to him. That passage in Hebrews goes on to say, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is a good fruit. That is worth desiring and pursuing. And it won't come without the Lord's discipline. So the flying scroll in Zechariah's vision containing the covenant curses of the law reminds us that God is committed to sanctifying his church to conforming us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. May we be diligent in our pursuit of holiness and may we welcome his chastisement when it comes into our lives, since we know that his discipline is from his love and for our good. The Lord disciplines his people. The second vision in chapter five, verses five through 11, shows us that God removes his people's guilt. Let me read these verses to you. 
Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So there's a basket with a woman in it. That's leaving Judah. That's what's happening in this image. There's two women with wings carrying this basket away. These could be angels. If that's the case, it'd be the only place in the scriptures that angels are depicted as women rather than as men. But that doesn't mean that couldn't be. But we're not sure who the, who the women are or who they represent. But nevertheless, they are carrying this basket with this woman called wickedness out of Judah to the land of Shinar, which, by the way, is another ancient name for Babylon. So they're taking the, the basket representing wickedness to Babylon. Notice, please, its direction. It is going out. That's repeated. The angel tells him, look and see what this is that is going out. And he says, what is it? And he says, this is the basket that is going out. The, the direction of this basket is important. It's not coming in. <laughs> It's going out, that is out from the land of Judah. The scroll in the first vision was going over the land of Judah. The basket in this vision is leaving Judah. It's departing. What's in the basket? Well, it's a woman, which is a little weird, but it represents wickedness. He says, this is wickedness. But notice even more specifically what he says about it. He says, this is their iniquity in all the land, their iniquity in all the land. That's an old fashioned word. We don't use it very often today, but it means sin and its guilt. Sin and the guilt and the stain that comes along with it. So it's not just the acts of sin that the people do, it's the very guilt, the very shame, the very stain of that sin upon the people. And their iniquity, their sin and its guilt is in this basket and it's being carried away from the land of Judah. So please note, Yahweh in the book of Zechariah is returning to Judah, right? Return to me, I will return to you. Iniquity is going out from Judah. Where Yahweh is hanging out, iniquity can't remain. Yahweh comes back, iniquity goes away. So what are we to make of this woman in the basket? Why is there a woman called wickedness? Well, of course, remember that we're in uh, apocalyptic sort of prophetic uh, visions. And so we don't have to necessarily draw too many implications from, from everything we see here. Uh, but you might remember in our time in the book of Revelation that Babylon, that is the city of man with all of its wealth and its idolatry and its wickedness and its sexual immorality was depicted in Revelation 17 as a woman, a harlot riding on a beast, right? Named Babylon. 
And, uh, and so we have, I, I think, clearly this vision of this woman whose wickedness going to Babylon is probably in the background of Revelation chapter 17, when you see the harlot Babylon on a dragon. And so the, the woman in this basket represents the iniquity of the people. And I think even more specifically than that, it represents their iniquity because of Babylon. I think it's sort of the stain, the residue, if you will, of Babylon that is on the people of God in Judah. There's some interesting uh, language play here uh, where you see uh, something about a leaden cover. The leaden cover was lifted and he thrust down the leaden weight. The, the language there really is a, a talent of lead, talent being uh, a measure. And talent of lead in Hebrew sounds a lot like the Hebrew phrase for mercy seat. Remember, the mercy seat was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, and it depicted God's presence among his people uh, to judge sin and to carry it away and to be the presence of God in uh, the land of Judah, in the, the temple. And so the talent of lead and the mercy seat parallel kind of sets up this woman uh, a little bit like a, a mock Ark of the Covenant. So the woman sits upon the cover of this basket as a sort of parody of God seated upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so that it's being carried away to Babylon and being set up in a house prepared for it. I think that means a house of worship. Like it's going to have its own temple and it's its own sort of false God. And so it's a, it's a parody, a mockery of God and his presence among his people in the temple in Jerusalem. One commentator says that this is an anti-ark born by anti-cherubs, kind of angels, kind of not, and it's put in an anti-temple transported to an anti-Jerusalem. So like everything about this woman in this basket and this temple in Babylon is sort of a parody of God dwelling among his people and being worshipped there in the temple. And so it's all of the false worship of these pagan deities and perhaps even the wickedness and sin of, uh, of the, the, the nation of Babylonia in, in its entirety sort of just portrayed as idolatry, as idol worship. And so God is taking the false worship, the sin and the wickedness of the people that sort of remain on them, the residue from their life in Babylon. And he's carrying it away and setting it up in Babylon. In Ezekiel chapters 1 through 11, Yahweh departed the temple in Jerusalem on a chariot pulled by winged creatures who were riding on the wind. So there's even lots of parallels to that previous prophetic image of God leaving. And so now here are these women flying in the air. It says they were carrying it between heaven and earth, which means in the air. And they're carried on the wind with wings like a stork. You might go, that's a weird bird to mention. But a stork was a bird that was known to the land of Palestine that migrated to the north. It had big wings, and it flew north uh, uh, to, out of the land of Judah uh, in the winter. And so uh, there's, they're representing, again, something that's leaving Judah. There's this in this annual migration. And so the women are carrying the basket to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. And they're building a house for it. They're setting up a temple, and then they're going to set it down there. And, uh, and so idolatry, wickedness, 
false worship is removed from the people of God. So note the parallels and the contrasts, right? Yahweh returns to Judah. Wickedness and idolatry depart from Judah. Yahweh's temple will be built in Jerusalem. The wicked temple will be built in Babylon. And so what we see in this kind of strange vision is God purifying his people from their sin and idolatry. Specifically, the, the, the sort of life of Babylon is eradicated from God's people in Judah. He's removing the, the filth, the residue of Babylon from the hearts and lives of the Jews, signifying that they must turn from the paganism of the culture that they've returned from, sort of the air that they've breathed for the last 70 years. When I was a teenager, my family had a blue healer, and uh, and we lived kind of in a down a dirt road in a rural uh, uh, town in Texas, and uh, and she liked to explore. Her name was Pepper, and so Pepper would go roaming and come back at the end of the day, and uh, we didn't ever know necessarily what she had gotten into. But there was one particular time where she went out to explore, and her adventure included a tangle with a skunk. And so when she came home, she reeked like nothing I have ever smelled and probably haven't smelled since. It was unbelievable. She went roaming in the wild and she came back smelling like it, right? She had been out there and the residue of it was on her. And man, we tried and tried everything you can imagine. If people tell you tomato sauce or vinegar or peanut butter, we tried all of those things. It just makes them smell kind of like skunk and vinegar and skunk and tomato sauce and skunk and peanut butter. But really, was so probably for like a month, she just smelled horrible. Like we do not want to be around you, right? Because the residue of her tangle with a skunk was on her. It was in her fur and in her skin. It was just there. And this is the people of God who have been living in the, this place of false worship and paganism and wickedness and immorality. And the, they're back in the land. They've come home, but the filth is still on them. The residue is still there. And this vision shows God removing the residue of Babylon from them. And here's, I think, the point for us. Don't get comfortable in the world. When you get too close to the world, the stench of it rubs off on you. Don't embrace the values and treasures of our increasingly godless culture. Don't minimize the things about your Christian faith that make you distinct from the world around you. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May we seek to live single-mindedly for the glory of God among the nations, serving others in love, refusing to mimic the loves and pursuits of Babylon. May we be comforted by God's commitment to remove sin and iniquity and its guilt from our midst. The eighth vision is the first half of chapter six. And in this vision, God gives his people rest. Let's look at these verses together. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. 
Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after pre presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So these chariots, four chariots pulled by groups of horses. We don't know the number of horses. We know that there's four chariots. We don't know how many uh, horses are, uh, are with each one. Uh, they, chariots, of course, are associated with kings and especially with military strength. Like the chariot was the tank of that day. So to say that the chariots pulled by these strong horses coming from uh, from the presence of God is to say that what we're looking at here are the sort of the hosts of heaven, the armies of God's angels, right? These are these are the forces that work for God, that do his bidding, that are ready to go out into the world as he sends them. The fact that they come between two mountains of bronze, I think, indicates that they're that it's they're coming from heaven, that is from the presence of God. In 1 Kings chapter 7, Solomon's temple had two bronze pillars at the entrance, and the whole temple layout was designed to represent like God's dwelling place in heaven. And so the two bronze mountains from which these chariots emerged seems to mean they were in the presence of God in heaven, and they've come from heaven. Uh, there's four different colors of horses named, but there's no significance explicitly assigned to those colors. And so we probably shouldn't get too caught up going, well, what is what's the significance of the red horse and the black horse and the white horse? Um, perhaps it's just indicating that these horses are assigned to different things. And indeed, that's what you see. You see the black horses go north and the white horses go after them and the dappled horses go south. What about the red ones? So you get you got four chariots. Two of them go north. One of them goes south, and one of them doesn't have a particular assignment. But neither west nor east is mentioned. That might sound strange to you. But geographically, it makes sense because the enemies of the people of God always came from either the north, like Babylon and Assyria. Although they were to the east, they had to travel up over the Fertile Crescent instead of going across a desert to get to them. So the enemies came from the north or from the south, perhaps Egypt, Egypt and Edom are some of the enemies that would come from the south. And so two chariots go north, one chariot goes south, and one of them is sort of in reserve, perhaps. To the west is sea, and to the east is desert, right? So at that point, they were not particular threats to the people of God from those directions. So the enemies are in the north and in the south. And so these horse-drawn chariots are the the hosts of heaven, that is the host of Yahweh of hosts. Remember, he's called Yahweh of hosts like 53 times in the book of Zechariah. Well, here they are. Here are the hosts represented by these horse-drawn uh, horse chariots. And so the chariots are said to be going out to the four winds of the earth, or, or it could be uh, on the winds or with the winds. And so they're riding with the wind, which indicates two things. One, they're fast. Two, they go everywhere. I think that's the point of saying that they rode on the wind. Uh, they, they go everywhere, all over the earth, and they are quick about it. Doesn't, when God assigns an angel or a chariot or a host, right, go, 
doesn't take them a really long time to go and see what's going on and then come back, right? They, they picture for us God's sovereign watch and rule over all the earth so that they patrol the earth and report back to him about what's going on. Reminds us, God knows what's going on in his world. There's no corner of the earth that he's uncertain about or that he can't reach. And the result of them going out, so they're strong horses, and he says they're eager, they're impatient to go and patrol the earth. So God sends them out. All right, go and patrol the earth. And then as they go, we have this message called back to Zechariah. It sounds like from the angel who's interpreting for him, right, and, and helping him to understand these visions. The angel calls back to him in verse 8. Behold, those who go toward the north country, which would be the, the region from which Babylon came, Right. Those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. <coughs> That's a beautiful phrase, and it's easy to, to misunderstand it or to, to kind of skim over it. If you remember the first vision that Zechariah had back in chapter 1, there were horses in that one too who were patrolling the earth. And the report that those... Uh, patrols gave were that the nations are at rest. So it even sounds sort of similar. You've got horses going out and patrolling and they come back and say the nations are at rest. And here in this eighth vision, you have the horses and the chariots that go out and they come back and they say, my spirit is at rest in the North country. It sounds pretty similar, but I want you to notice very clear distinctions between them. In the first one, the nations being at rest meant that Judah was not at rest, right? It meant the nations that oppressed the people of God were still in power and having their way. And indeed, God said that his spirit within him was not at rest. He was provoked to jealousy for his people and to anger against the nations who had been oppressing his people. And so the rest in the first vision was the rest of the oppressing powers uh, that were against the people of God who had not yet been jostled or messed with, right? God hasn't yet judged them, and so they are at rest, which led to the angels sort of lamenting, how long, O Lord, until you avenge your people? But what's happening in this one is altogether different. First of all, we've had now seven visions before it that indicate all of God's promises and purposes and work to redeem his people and to restore them. And he's promised to judge their enemies, just as he told Abraham, those who dishonor you, I will curse. And so he's promised, I will, I will judge the enemies. I will oppress those who oppress you. And, and he's told them, I'm returning to you in covenant blessing and faithfulness and love. And so when those who patrol the north set the spirit of God at rest, what it means is the judgment has taken place. The chariots, the hosts of heaven have gone to Babylon and brought God's justice, brought God's judgment upon them. And so now the spirit of God is resting. He has judged the wickedness of Babylon and his spirit rests because justice has been dispensed and his people are at peace in their land again. So all the things he's been promising and purposing for them have now in these visions come to pass. The people of God are safe and secure and living in peace. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised his, the people of Israel rest from their enemies. 
when they lived in covenant faithfulness before him, honoring his word and worshiping him as he instructed. And here, despite generations of rebellion and disobedience, God has drawn near to them again, returned to them in covenant faithfulness and blessing and defeated their enemies, both without and within. Right? The sin and iniquity of his own people he's dealt with, just as he's judged the nations that had oppressed them. And so now as the Spirit himself is at rest in the North Country, so the people of God may enjoy the rest that he's provided them. This is the comfort and the encouragement that God intends for Zechariah to convey to his people. Now, this envisioned rest for Israel is only a shadow of the final future rest that yet awaits God's people. On the day of the Lord, when Christ returns to the earth, he will carry his children home to a renewed creation to live in safety with him forever. And there, no enemy of God or of his church can scale the walls and do them any harm ever again. What blessed peace and rest we will enjoy for all eternity. But while that ultimate rest is yet future for us, let me ask you, what would it mean for you if you could borrow some of that, the peace from that future age and apply it to your heart today? What if the certainty of your ultimate destination secured for you by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus infused your present with faith and hope and courage? How might the cares and anxieties of your daily life be lessened, be more manageable, if you could simply grow in your confidence in God's love and in his future plans for your eternal joy? By his death on the cross, when he took your sin and its guilt, that is your iniquity, upon himself, Jesus purchased for you peace with God. He purchased hope. He purchased rest. What fear, worry, anxiety can you lay before the feet of Jesus this morning, replacing it with confident faith in the good rest he's promised you and that he paid for with his own blood? The Jews living in Jerusalem and returning to the land of Judah during Zechariah's day would rightly have been both challenged and comforted by these prophetic visions. Challenged because the visions exhorted them to reject sin and to obey God's word, to live lives of holiness and righteousness before the Lord. Comforted because God promised that he would fulfill these things among them, that, that he himself would remove their iniquity, that he would bring justice upon the nations who oppressed them, that he would bring them rest. But friends, I submit to you that these prophecies, though certainly relevant to the Jews living in Zechariah's day, are in an even fuller way for us, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. Let's look at them one at a time real quick. The vision in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, portrayed the curses of covenant unfaithfulness falling upon those of God's people who were disobedient to his word. Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curses for disobedience embedded within the law of Moses have been removed from us because they fell on Christ in our place. 
If you are in Christ, you don't need to fear the curse of God falling upon you because it's already fallen upon him and they'll never fall again. The vision in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, poignantly depicted the removal of Israel's sin and guilt from their land as he sent the stain of Babylon with its worldly lusts and false worship away from his presence. Hebrews 2.17 says of Jesus, the Son of God, that he was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, that is, he has carried our guilt away, thus satisfying the wrath of God against our sin. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, God has removed our sin and its guilt from us. On the cross, Jesus became our propitiation, carrying our iniquity away from us and away from God's presence forever. And there is no force, whether an oppressing power outside the church or disruptive sin within the church, that can unbind the cords of love that he has wrapped around us in Christ. And then finally, the vision in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, showed God's people a near future in which the enemies of Judah would be eradicated and they would live in peace and security under his loving, watchful eye. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' death and resurrection, our greatest enemies have been defeated and we have been reconciled to God. We who have trusted in Christ are now at peace with the God with whom we once contended for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have no enemies to fear. And the watchful eye of our loving Father now rests upon us as his beloved children. What have we to fear? This is the grace of God to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's purpose today to live confidently in the good of that grace for his glory. Let's pray together.